one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team has worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end, but they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. Alright, and welcome everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space episode 1407 for the week of Monday, October 10th, 2022. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Hey, Sawyer, let's kick the tires and light the fires. Let's get get a haul on it, because we've got a lot to talk about tonight. Absolutely, and welcome as well, Mark Ratterman. Hello, let's go. And Kat Robeson is unable to join us tonight, but Kat will be back with us very shortly and with some great stuff from IAC. So stay tuned for that. Kat, I miss you. All right. In the meantime, though, we are going to get started here with the most recent crew on their way to the International Space Station and now at the Orbiting Laboratory. And that was the SpaceX Crew 5 mission, the Crew Dragon Endurance carrying uh, Commander Nicole Mann, Pilot Josh... Kasada, uh, Mission Specialist Kuichi Wakata, and Anna Kigana to the International Space Station. Uh, Man, Kasada, and Kigana all on their first flights, the latter being from Roscosmos, and then Kuichi Wakata on his fifth space flight, flying for JAXA, which is Japan's space program. The crew lifted off at noon on the dot this past Wednesday, October 5th and then docked 29 hours later to the International Space Station to become a part of Expedition 68 and 69. And Mark, you and I were at this launch. Yeah, I didn't get much of the uh, preliminary stuff due to my day job. I was kind of tied up with living in Florida and hurricane pre-post and all that jazz. So I was at least there for launch day, which I'm glad I got that opportunity. Absolutely. And that was part of it is that there really wasn't much fanfare ahead of it. And it's possible that because of Hurricane Ian, a lot of things were pushed back or delayed uh, in terms of all missions at Cape Canaveral, since the eye of the the storm basically went straight over the Cape, although thankfully did not affect it as badly. Of course, though, our thoughts do go out to everyone who has been affected by the storm, which has killed over 100 people now. But it was... A little bit of a slow ramp up and hype to the launch itself. And I know, Mark, you and I were mentioning this a little bit while we were there, is that the parking lot and where we were watching the launch seemed surprisingly empty for a launch at noon on a Wednesday. I would kind of categorize it with uh, the way I used to see the parking lot for uh, during the end of the shuttle program for for pre-launch events, where it, it wasn't a countdown day, but just you know, other other events for the media leading up to launch where not necessarily everybody and their brother was there, but this was an actual crew launch. So yeah, it was light, I thought. Really was. I mean, 
for I'm even thinking the last one I was at was Crew 3. And that one, the parking lots were jam packed everywhere. Uh, There was a ton of empty spaces. Interestingly, some of the national media that arrived that had tents and all these fancy setups and everything for Artemis were relegated to a van in a tent in the parking lot. Like not a full size huge tent, like a kind of canopy type tent that you might bring at a picnic. And that was where they were operating out of for national news. So they kind of really didn't want to play it up that much. It felt like, I mean, beforehand though, we did get a chance to talk to a couple of people with the program and we'll play one of those in a little bit, but yeah, it was definitely surprising the lack of show up. And I wonder that if it is starting to get kind of like the shuttle program where, you know, as the missions went on and it became more normal and regular, people kind of stopped caring as much as they used to. I hope that's not the case, but I could see it being that. Yeah, I was going to ask you guys, do you think that's that's part and parcel of the, quote, becoming routine, close quote? I know for a fact that, um, you know, the, the folks over at uh, the commercial crew program don't look at these things as routine at all. They, this is still a brand new spacecraft, the, the Crew Dragon. They're still learning about it. Um, I'm wondering, though, is is this this a sign that the public is getting a little, I don't know, mm-hmm. not complacent, complacent, maybe, or just, you know, ho-hum about this or, or, or what? I hope not, but I can absolutely 100% see that being the case right now. I mean, yet when you look at the area, the people that were there, I mean, obviously you can't compare it to 135 or Artemis, but even to the last few crew launches I've been at, there was a lot more hype around it. A lot more people traveled to go see it and everything. And this one, it kind of felt like, oh, there was a launch. Could could that, and, and this is just, you know, a wild shot, but uh, could uh, Ian have done something, you know, to, to kind of dampen, dampen the usual hype machine on this or, you know, could have the Ian just really, really caused this thing to fly under the radar. It's just a, it's just a wild thought. It's a good thought, but I, I'm sure some of it did, but I don't think as much of it, is that as I would have liked, honestly, I think it's again, just, you know, a kind of lack of interest. There was, I mean, there's close to as many people there for crew five. It felt like of the media as there were at the, uh, SES 20 and 21 launch, uh, which was just two comm satellites that were launched the day before on an Atlas five. That's, that's interesting. I'm, I'm very curious now to see what the, the crew six launch is going to look like. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can only speak to what was at the press site. I didn't see any of the public viewing areas, but I did hear that the uh, main launch viewing program that they have, I think it's called Feel the Heat with the Kennedy Space Center Visitor Complex, was not sold out the night before. Yeah, and and again, I'm almost – I almost want to attribute this to to Hurricane Ann. Um, I mean, people of I, I, people, local people anyway in Florida, even people two, three hours away, may have had a, a bigger fish to fry, you know, if you will, um, you know, with with their own homes and and you know the loss of things and so on and so forth. So I'm just wondering if, if this was Hurricane Ian's doing, or if this is 
you know, a sign that maybe things are starting to wane a little bit, you know, interest is starting to wane a little bit? Well, consider, too, that from the STS-135 last launch of the shuttle for for crew, um, that we've gotten used to crew launches just happening. And, of course, they were supported by um, Roscosmos and Soyuz capsules. And we didn't have anything, you know, on U.S. soil until the commercial crew program came to its full certification and operational stage. So that's that's got to be part of it, too, along with just how things have gone the last few years for um, on-site presence of, of media and, and events like this. I'm just recalling what it was like at STS-129 as opposed to STS-135. Mark, you were you were there with me for 129, and yeah. it, it it you know as far as the the press was concerned, there were there was the local, you know the the, the local uh, uh, Florida stations there, but uh, as far as any kind of national presence, um, I, there really what was not. Uh, maybe you know, I mean, Bill Harwood, Harwood was there, obviously from from CBS and. A few others, but um, you know th- those are the the grizzled veterans who are always there. Uh, it, it was just, uh, I you know, it was really sparse. And then we go over to one thirty five, the, the final shuttle flight, and it's wall to wall. And I, I still remember the, all those tents and all those those uh, uh, you know structures that were built temporarily built to service all of all of the press over there, and it was just. You know, I mean, you know, one thirty-five was just as important as one twenty-nine, and you know, just as much as Crew Five was as important as as uh, Crew One was. So I'm not, you know, I'm I'm hoping that we're not entering a, a new era of complacency. You know, of of just not not so much complacency. I guess it's more of a, you know, you know, ambivalence, and I'm just hoping that's not the case. Well, you know, I, I got to throw this out that uh, imagine a billboard you might see or an ad or maybe a, a, a some kind of a something or other on a website where, you know, it says, hey, come to Florida. We're launching astronauts to the International Space Station. And oh, by the way, it's hurricane season, but don't worry about that. <laughs> yeah. That might have something to do with it, too. Yeah. But, um uh, it, it, yeah, I, I I have a feeling that um, Hurricane Ian really may have put a, a, a you know may have given a the crew five a little bit of a sucker punch when it comes to uh, you know news and and participation and so on locally. Um, that that's just my thought. I'm I, I guess really the proof of the pudding will be you know to to borrow a phrase from from Bill Nelson there. Um, it, it will be uh, to what what the crowd will look like on Crew Six. I think that's going to have to be the comparison. Yeah, I don't think it really matters either what time of day. Although, you know, again, the fact that there's more people from middle of the night than there was at noon on a weekday, I don't know if that's a good or a bad impact. Well, I guess we'll soon we'll soon find out. But there were other other things going on over there, Sawyer, that both you and Mark were able to 
to take a look at. And, and uh, Sawyer, you've got a got a couple of uh, interesting things to share as well. I mean, I think the first thing to share before we drag it on any longer is my favorite part of any launch besides the visuals, and that is the sound. In fact, I might yep. even like the sound more than the visuals, honestly. And uh, this one, actually, I have to give huge credit to Mark. He was the one who set up all the recording stuff for this one. So, uh, Mark, would you like to play that? Now, it's interesting, Mark, you and I were talking a lot about the launch itself. I know Shuttle, there's not really anything that compares to it. And Mark, you've seen Saturn V, and obviously Artemis should put on quite a show sound-wise. But Falcon 9 could be hit or miss. I mean, any rocket is a great rocket as long as it's successful. But this one, for some reason, felt more bassy. I don't know if it was just where we were located, possibly the wind, but... This one had a little more rumble to it, not just noise. It put on a kind of feel and a show. And Mark, what was your thoughts in general on our uh, Falcon 9 friend here? Well, I may be missing one, but I've only seen three of the uh, Falcon 9 launches. Only two with crew. One, I was north up on the Playland Beach Park area. And, uh, of course, this one there at the KSC press site. And the first one was out, uh, I believe, on a causeway, perhaps. I don't remember where the first one was. But, yeah, this definitely had some punch to it. Uh, you know, I would say it was reminiscent of Shuttle for, you know, the the rumble and the feel that you got from it. So, you know, it kind of... Uh, it was definitely a, a good good experience. And clouds always make it interesting. Oh, yeah. It punched through one cloud pretty low down. It wasn't a huge cloud ceiling, but I think it was enough to get a good little reverb and also nice to always see the Falcon punch through the clouds, too. But, yeah, this one definitely was a little little on the more rumbly side. I mean, there are other Falcons that I've been to where, you know, it puts on great sound, but you don't get that feel can only imagine once we finally get the uh, five-segment solid rocket boosters and the four RS-25 engines from Artemis. But that's another story for another day, month, year. We'll get to that part a little later. But also interesting with this launch is that this is the first launch from Launch Complex 39A since SpaceX has completed basic assembly 
of its new launch tower. In case you're unaware, they are building a launch tower for their new Starship vehicle within the gates of 39A. And over the past three or four months, it went from a few little pieces of steel to uh, pretty much taller than the uh, launch tower for the Falcon 9 and Falcon Heavy at the pad there. It's quite the sight to behold, and eventually the plan is for SpaceX to launch these Starship vehicles from there with the ability to catch the first stage booster back in arms that are attached to that, as well as landing the actual spacecraft itself on land. So it's quite ambitious, but it's very interesting seeing that go up right not only in such a historic launch pad, but that close to active hardware that if it were to, I don't know, say be destroyed by a failure of some kind of Starship, could be devastating to crew flight in addition to regular Falcon flights. Yeah, Sawyer, and that was that was a question I, I was wondering too. I know NASA is looking at that really close, and they're saying they've they've said in the past that you know you guys are going to have to have to rethink a couple of things here and um, possibly think about Launch Complex Forty being man rated. And um, I don't know. I know there was some talk about doing that. Um, I don't know whether whether or not they're. I, I think they they are. I think SpaceX really is seriously looking at trying to uh, human rate the uh, the the secondary launch complex that they have, which is Launch Complex Forty, to uh, to service um, uh, uh, human missions. So it, it's going. It would probably take a a refit of some sort. And uh, I'm sure that they'll, they'll go ahead and do that to accommodate, you know, NASA's wishes in the event that they do have a, have a problem over there with, um, um, with Starship. So uh, I I know that, that there has been talk about that. Part of the reason why I brought that up is because I actually had the chance to talk to someone ahead of launch about that exact concern. In addition to what it takes to actually get the Falcon 9, which in this case used a brand new booster as opposed to a reflown one, as well as the Crew Dragon Endurance, which had previously flown before. How you get them together, assembled inside their horizontal integration facility or HIF, out to the pad and get it ready for crew. Talked all about that, hurricane preparations, and a lot more. So I think might as well play the whole thing and we'll uh, talk about some of it after. So this is Alec Jacobs, who is the launch site integration engineer for the commercial crew program. Uh, If I could just start with your name and title, please. Name's Alec Jacobs. I'm a launch site integrator uh, within the ground and mission operations office for the commercial crew program. Can you talk a little bit about what it takes to get uh, Falcon and Dragon up and ready at the pad for launch day? Yeah, it's a lot of work. comes from all over the nation, right? We got our stages coming from Hawthorne, going through McGregor for um, testing, and then getting shipped to KSC as well. Got the Dragon spacecraft, um, getting refurbed here at KSC, um, and then getting shipped to the launch site as well. All of that stuff gets integrated at the hangar right at 39A. Um, a lot of work there to get everything buttoned up and closed out and mated, and uh, the transporter erector, you know, the big, big strong back that holds the launch vehicle and spacecraft, get, get all the umbilicals made and stuff. Um, and then an eventual trip out to the pad, raising the vehicle and 
you know, going through static fires, dry dress like we did, you know, on Sunday and um, getting everything ready for, for launch. So it's, it's a long integrated process, you know, we've work, been working on all the stages for, for some time and the Dragon spacecraft and really everything comes together within the last few weeks of um, launch. Um, so Yeah, from what, how long does it take for when you get the Falcon and Dragon and everything in the HIF to getting it up on the pad? Yeah, so I, I, I'm trying to recall timelines, but you know it's within a couple of weeks um, of getting getting the stages in um, in the hangar. Um, I think it was probably less than a week and a half ago we got the Dragon transported to uh, the hangar for mate, and before that they're obviously working on the first stage. They do um, first and second stage mate in the hangar. They roll the transporter rector in. And then uh, you know, then they bring in Dragon and, and made it right away. So um, it's all it's all happening within the last few weeks before launch. All this stuff coming together, getting integrated, and ready for rollout. Are there any changes that you've made to the flow or the process as we've now made it to the fifth crew launch? Yeah, I think you know SpaceX, our partner, is obviously um, they they're continually working on process improvement, optimizations. So. From a processing standpoint, they're always looking for areas of improvement as they continue to go through the different flows. Um, I, I can say, you know, refur refurbishment of the pad is obviously a big thing. Um, and, and between flights, they've gotten better and better at knowing where the areas of more exposure are so they can refurbish quicker or, or uh, further strengthen things. So that's one area of improvement I, I know that they've had, you know, as their uh, manifest is, you know, continuing to increase. We keep a close eye on refurbishment and, and, um, and make sure you know things get refurbed and um, they're getting better and better at it obviously as, as they kind of go through the process too. So is there sort of a preference on your end of when SpaceX does its last flight at 39A before a crew launch or is it just when the pad's ready it's ready? Yeah when the pad's ready it's ready I think um, th there's obviously certain steps they have to take to be able to get it ready and that takes a certain amount of time. Um, there, there hasn't been a concern with the, the spacing between missions at 39A. There's, there's a, a known amount of work that has to get done between missions, um, and SpaceX is really getting really good at doing that work and turning around the pad. I'm sure you know from their Starlink missions and other missions, they're, they're able to turn around the pad really quickly um, and, and get the right amount of work done. So we're, we're on the same page with that. Obviously, last week we had Hurricane Ian come through. Yeah. First big one, really, now that we've got the commercial crew program up and running here. What did you guys do to prepare, and how did everything fare? Yeah, so there was a there was a lot of preparation. Um, obviously, KSC and the Space Force they they have their Hercon protocols and they stepped through that project very logic process very logically. Um, and SpaceX, our partner, you know they they have their own protocols that fit within the the framework of um, uh, the, the Space Center and the Space Force protocols. So everyone stepped through their normal protocols for hurricane securing. That all went well. Um, we took a couple of days off last week for the hurricane and. And um, luckily, the assets, the hardware, and the workforce for KC fared pretty well. Um, the launch vehicle and spacecraft looked great after the hurricane. They assessed damage, any damage at the pad, and um, it looked really well as well. Um, so, you know, we made it out pretty good for, for having a hurricane kind of thrown in the middle of our launch processing flow. Um, you know, our, obviously our thoughts go out to those who didn't fare so well um, down in the south, but um, KC, you know, seemed to make it pretty well. and. Um, and KC even did, did a readiness review and, and a post-hurricane specific review just to make sure all the assets coming out of that were still in a ready and supportable state for the Crew-5 mission. And, you know, all of that pulled go, and, and here we are, you know, proceeding to, to launch uh, here in, in the next day. So Nice. 
Are there any concerns at all from this side when it comes to the tower going up now for Starship right within the confines of 39A? Yeah, so I, um, SpaceX and NASA and the Commercial Crew Program are working hand-in-hand hand as, as that tower kind of erects and all the ground systems for the Starship launch pad uh, kind of come online. So CCP is kind of intimately involved with all the changes and modifications at the pad, anything that um, would affect a Falcon or a Dragon ground system. You know, we've got good insight and review in and, and ensure there's no impact to our mission or our crew safety. Um, so we're working hand in hand on that and um, we're, you know, excited for the commercial spaceport as it continues to move along um, while also ensuring, you know, our, our program and our mission is not impacted from, from that. What got you into this anyway, into getting into the integration side? For... Just for you personally, just oh, to yeah. get into this. My, um, I'm, I'm actually from Titusville, so I grew up in the space, you know, off, off the space coast, and my parents both worked out here, so I was really excited to be able to work out here after college. Um, I obviously grew, grew up watching shuttle launches, and uh, being at KSC, it's just logical to be a ground system guy, uh, you know, looking at the pads, you know, launch readiness, all that kind of stuff, so um, it's been kind of a natural progression. Um, and it's really exciting working with Commercial Crew Program and being able to work with our partners, SpaceX and Boeing, um, and getting the launch sites ready and, and, and kind of being part of this next era of uh, spaceflight, you know, low-Earth orbit spaceflight. So. Anything else you'd like to add? No, just really excited for the Crew-5 mission. Uh, obviously excited to get the astronauts up to the space station and, and return the astronauts on, from Crew-4. Um, you know, everything's looking good. We're looking good. We're, we're watching weather, obviously, but... Um, we're really excited, and, and we'll launch when we're ready. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you. So along those lines of uh, the Starship Tower, I think that was a very diplomatic answer to say. <laughs> yeah, that that was – that when I, I listened to that uh, – um, uh, Sawyer, yeah, I have to agree with you there. That was kind of a, a diplomatic answer uh, to the problem. But again, I know – and, and he, he, he basically said sort of – the same kind of thing where you know they they are working hand in hand with with the customer if you will to to assure uh to assure access so um i i know for i i know pretty much they are looking at uh uh launch complex 40 say to to human rate that that area too in the event something goes wrong at uh at 39a um there was, but I thought he he was extraordinarily insightful uh, with with giving uh, the timeline, if you will, uh, on how you know you're going to go ahead and and get the the spacecraft from Dragonland over to uh, over to the SpaceX uh, HIF over at 39A and and integrate it into the vehicle and get it out to the pad. There's there's a lot of lot of steps that go into that, and uh, um, he was he was pretty good in trying to to describe at least some of that given the time constraints that that you had for the interview um one thing i was really really delighted to hear was the fact that he's a local he's a local guy he grew up in in and around um space all his life and i think he mentioned too that his parents had worked at uh, at ksc and um uh it's it's nice to see the the homegrown element to uh, to to get into all of this and and it 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 just shows how um how nasa is sort of a, a a good neighbor if you will you know they're they're trying to get you know the local folks in there and 
and uh, uh, that are really, really excited about being there. And, and he sounds like he's he's really, really charged up about being there. Absolutely. And again, we had the unique issue this time of the hurricane, too. So, you know, there's steps to go out and assure that everything at the launch pad is still safe and ready and all of that. I think it was really fascinating, especially just the number of times we say, oh, they rolled it out to the pad. It's like, well, yeah, they did. But all the things that went on beforehand and all the things that they do after is out there to make sure it's ready for T-Zero is, I thought, fascinating. So I'm really glad that he sat down with us. Yeah, sorry, I'm I'm right there with you. In fact, it this was a good demonstration of of yeah, technology is fantastic, but there are people behind that technology, and he made sure that 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 people knew it. Exactly, perfectly said. And so now the crew of Crew Five will spend approximately six months up the International Space Station, and shortly after their arrival in the next couple of weeks, we will see Crew Four return, splashing down likely in the Atlantic Ocean with the backup location in the Gulf of Mexico. Yes, yeah, sir. Before we, we, we leave Crew 5, I'm just going to say a couple things. One, um, it, listening to um, uh, Nicole Mann and uh, Anna Kirkina, she they, they both were just, I mean, they're both first-time flyers. And if you listen to, to any of the air-to-ground um uh, coverage that uh, NASA television was doing with those, those two were just off the wall excited. Um, and I mean, you could, you can actually hear, literally hear the, the smile on the, on their faces and their voices, uh, as, as they were, they were talking and, and Anna specifically really, you know, went out of her way to say that, uh, um, you know, we're in this, you know, um, you know, she, she even said in her, in her, um, welcoming remarks when they got to the ISS, um, that we're all in this together and I'm looking forward to really, really working together with the entire, you know, with the entire team. So she really, you know, given, you know, the geopolitical, um, situation that's going on, uh, here on earth, she really made sure that, uh, she was, you know, she really went out of her way to mention that, hey, we're we're really one crew up here. So um, I, I thought that was that was an interesting, interesting element to throw in there as far as all of that is concerned. I agree. I mean, anytime that they were talking about getting ready to fly once they got into orbit, you could hear Nicole Mann's excitement. And then even once they got on the station, once they had the official welcoming ceremony, it was Really exciting. And uh, I should also point out, by the way, that they did have a small version of Albert Einstein as their zero G indicator, which was really yeah, cool. Yeah, there was, was a long explanation, too, as to why that was. It was one of Einstein's dreams, apparently. It had to do with the special theory of relativity and so on. And there was a very long and lengthy explanation as why they selected that. And um, it was really just a tribute to... Uh, to the guy that uh, helped get him there, if you will, <laughs> uh, you know. So that that's the that was one of the reasons why they uh, uh, they selected Einstein. One of the things I want to bring up too is during the the post flight press conference, I, I kind of listened in on on that, and uh, I thought it was very interesting. Um, you had all of the the heads of the uh, the agencies there. Um, with, uh, with, with Japan and, 
and then finally with Roscosmos and uh, Sergei uh, Kirkulev, who himself is a bit of a legend, if you will, in, in spaceflight. Uh, he was asked a very interesting question by a member of the press in there. Um, basically, is he? Uh, are they trying to? Is is Roscosmos deliberately trying to go ahead and turn the heat down? Because um, if you recall, what uh, the bombacity of uh, of uh, Dmitry Rogozin was um, in the past, and uh, now that there's a new um, head of Roscosmos in place, are are they really trying to to turn the the heat down and and really try to to get to uh, to basically try to be a good partner? And Kirkulev's answer was directly and succinct. The answer is yes. Um, so they are trying to do a, a, a deliberate um, uh, turn, you know, turning down of the heat. Uh, even the new, um, even the new uh, 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 head of Roscosmos, uh, gentleman here oh, by the name of uh, Yuri uh, Yuri Borsanov, and I know I just butchered his last name, and I do apologize for that. Um, this is I'm looking at a at um, a uh, uh, a translation of a uh, Roscosmos article by. Uh, uh, Katiana Polishikano. Um, and I, Katia, if you're listening, I know I messed up your last name. I do apologize. Uh, if you're not following her on Twitter, she goes by Caitlin Gray, G Gray. Um, it's Gray spelled G R E Y. Um, so go ahead and take a look for her, but, but she's been basically my, uh, I think everybody's kind of, uh, fly on the wall when it comes to Roscosmos these days. Um, she translated a uh, uh, a talk that uh, um, Borisov gave uh, to the Rus- uh, and about the Russian uh, space industry and their priorities. And one of the things he said, this was back on October fourth. And again, I'm, you know, I will say I'm getting this third hand, but it, it second hand, but it's um, uh, a very interesting statement here. Quote, it's a shame that the politicians are invading science and interfering with knowledge that is needed not just by Russians, but by the whole of humanity. We will do everything possible to protect our activities from such interference. I think this is the right thing to do. Close quote. Now, I, you know, given the the geopolitical situation that's going on right now, those are high words coming from him, and I'm I'm just wondering if that's kind of permeating through Roscosmos right now. And uh, I mean, grant you, it, it comes from the top, but I'm 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 interested to see. If Roscosmos is, is going to follow through on on any of this because of, well, I mean, the past is the past, but and there's a new sheriff in town, so to speak. But um, it, it, I'm I'm interested in seeing if if this kind of thinking continues because there's still there was still some talk, if you will, uh, if I remember Sawyer and and Mark, uh, you guys can confirm this for me. There was still some talk about the Russians. Um, 
going up to, you know, just fulfilling their obligation, the rest of their obligation with the International Space Station. And there was some speculation that, you know, that the, that um, 2024 could be it. Um, and I, I'm beginning to think now that that is definitely not the case. And I mean, grant you, they do want to start their own station, but it looks like, too, a lot of what Sergei Kirkulev was saying was that a lot of the um, if if there's going to be a decision to make is going to be on on a technical basis only. You know, politics is not going to going to play a role into it because I believe he said during the press conference that the modules up there, well, at least the Russian segment anyway, were set for about 15 years. We had a 15 year lifetime, and now they are. Let's say they're they're way past their shelf life, so they are trying to push to see if they can they can extend the life of those those some of those modules up there, um, and I think that's going to be the constraint. Um, at least that's what I'm getting from from the information that was given by uh, Sergey Kirkulev. And there's no, you know, I I'm I'm kind of wondering again what what future the Russians are going to play not just within the ISS, but also uh, within the international um, the international space arena. I mean, they do have an illustrious history. It's just how, you know, how the, the Ukrainian conflict is going to play into uh, uh, cooperation going further. I mean, from my understanding is we have them guaranteed through at least 2024. The question now is, are they going to stay beyond that? And it sounds like if it were up to Sergei Krikalev, the answer is yes, they would stay until 2030 before then branching off and doing their own thing. And if that's the case that uh, Yuri Borisov, who's now in head of Roscosmos, is, agrees with, then there's a shot. The only problem is he was appointed by President Vladimir Putin. And we know his stance uh, at the moment on relationships with the United States. It seems like the International Space Station relationship on Putin's mind is only out of obligation to the Russians that are on board rather than a joint cooperation between nations. So I think if it's up to the people who are working within Roscosmos directly, the answer would be absolutely. You heard what Krikalev said kind of from his own perspective of just the word, yes, we would. Yeah. Uh, considering who they have to answer to above them, that's my only concern with saying that they would totally be down for 2030. Yeah, I mean, I, I have to agree with you, Sawyer. I mean, you know, if it's up to – I have a feeling if it's up to both of those men, they would probably say yes, but it's not up to both of those men. That's what I'm that, – that's what I'm, I'm – I guess I'm driving at, and I'm I'm glad you made that point. Yeah, I don't know if they're going to be able to persuade the actual decision maker to do anything about that, but – if there's a way that they can kind of go around it, I'm sure they will. So fingers crossed yeah. that they can make it beyond that. Yeah, and and um, I, I I'm trying to remember, Sawyer. Maybe maybe you heard something about this. Is this? I know we we finally have um, you know a, a Russian cosmonaut on on a, on a crew dragon, um, and of course we're going to have uh, we had a, a an American on a Soyuz, and this is basically to go ahead and maintain. Uh, you know, an American presence on the ISS. It's just, I'm wondering what the future holds for future, you know, Russians flying on, on crew dragon or Starliner when it comes online. 
I absolutely see that happening from the sounds of it. It sounds like they want to continue having Russians fly on American rockets and Americans fly on Russian. Because the last time before this that a Russian cosmonaut flew on a U.S. spacecraft was STS-113 in 2007. Yeah, it has been, that's how long it's been. <laughs> yeah, it's been quite a while. I mean, this was this whole seat exchange was approved back in June. So if it goes beyond that, I could definitely see it, and it sounds like they want to. Like we've talked about, it's redundancy. If something were to happen to one vehicle, you still have access with another. Right. Exactly. And it's one of the reasons why we have Starliner coming online. So Exactly. Even though they may only have eight flights scheduled compared to SpaceX's, I believe they're, what do they have, 12 more in addition to what they already have? Something like that, yeah. I don't remember the exact number, but yeah. You know, it's always there. Yes, it's less. Yes, it costs more. But if anything happens to either of them, you have a backup. Yep. And that's how we're getting crew up there right now is for that very reason, because Starliner isn't ready. Crew Dragon is. Crew Dragon takes the load. In fact, three of the four people that were on this mission were scheduled to launch on a Starliner. In fact, Nicole Mann was supposed to command the CFT mission, which is the commercial flight test. So basically their first test with crew. And John Cassida was going to be the uh, pilot. So, Yeah. And and again, the reason why they upped that was Sawyer is, is again, they, they didn't want to wait. They wanted to give... Uh, uh, both both uh, astronauts uh, experience as soon as possible because I think they are also, uh, if memory serves, um, part of the uh, the astronaut corps that's that's been you know being looked at for Artemis missions. Oh, absolutely, and there are certainly rumors that I've heard swirling that someone from this crew, possibly a commander, could be the first person on the moon, first woman on the moon. So you never know. Yeah. Yeah, you never know. I know my right. prediction. I know my prediction shot as far as that's concerned, but uh, <laughs> as far as <laughs> what I thought it might be, but uh, um, uh, the I yeah, you know, again, if if that if it's Nicole Mann, then then so be it. Yeah, nothing official, so we'll have to see. But for now, it's uh, <laughs> we have Crew Five up there safely, and Crew Four hopefully coming down soon. And uh, yeah, best of luck to the crew now of Expedition 68, who will soon become Expedition 69 as well. Yep. And uh, happy landings to Crew 4. You've done some great work. We're we're looking forward to having you folks back here. Yeah, just kind of a side note that just popped in when you mentioned Crew 4. Um, on Crew 5 launch day, I took a look around the uh, press site newsroom to see if they had any you know, literature, brochures, things. Uh, some of it I pick up for my wife to pass on to teachers at the school she's at. And <laughs> there, I mean, there were a few things for Crew 5, but there was still posters, you know, like a nice size wall poster for Crew uh, Crew 4. And I thought, gee, it's, and of course now the people at the uh, NASA Exchange shop down in the parking lot they told me, they said, well, we do have, you know, the following things that we expected to get here, but the hurricane, you know, sort of stopped some of our deliveries. So we don't know when we're going to get, you know, the Crew 5 merchandise, but obviously not on launch day. So kind of wonder back to that disparity of uh, the uh, numbers of people present 
for the launch at the press site. And, you know, just in terms of comparing that to the amount of literature, which most of what I saw was generic other than a few stickers and pins. And also now that you mentioned Crew 4, it does remind me that we had another moment of history here that I should point out in that this is only the second time ever that we have had two female commanders aboard the International Space Station with Samantha Christopher Reddy commanding the ISS and Nicole Mann, who commanded Crew 5. And if I could throw something out there, too, I think you've got the most women that you've had on orbit currently, because I know the Chinese have got uh, um, a female crew member as well. Correct. And for the first time in a long time, we have, uh, I believe it's 14 people in space as well. Yep. So things are, at least things are starting to percolate even even more so. So uh, uh, this is is good news for spaceflight in general. Exactly. And on top of that, I mean, we still have other commercial crew missions that are going on that may not be going directly to the International Space Station. Uh, For example, there is Polaris Dawn, which is scheduled for next year, which will include the first ever... Uh, spacewalker EVA using Crew Dragon. And uh, one of the people with that flight, who is Jared Isaacman, who also flew on Inspiration 4, uh, has discussed something really interesting that NASA is behind as well. And that is a discussion of looking into a study to see whether a Polaris Dawn mission or a Crew Dragon flight in general could go and boost the Hubble Space Telescope, essentially trying to prolong its life and efficiency. Uh, yeah, I heard about this and I, I was, I was somewhat, I was somewhat skeptical. I mean, there was a lot of hype around, around the message. I know NASA was kind of saying there's going to be, well, I, I don't, it may not have been NASA. It might've been somebody else, but somebody saying that, that there's going to be an interesting announcement from, um, about Hubble. And I'm like, okay, fine. And uh, we get on, and I believe uh, Dr. Z um, was was part of the press conference and so on. And it was an announcement simply that NASA is going to do a study about uh, possibly making one final visit to the um, uh, the Hubble Space Telescope and boosting its its orbit. If it does not do that, Hubble probably has a um, finite life through 2037. And um, if um, that, uh, you know, once that happens, its orbit begins to decay and all of that. So you either have a choice of of bringing it in, you know, controlled, you know, docking a um, some sort of, uh, you know, some sort of satellite to it and uh, than auguring it in or boosting it. And uh, this was about possibly boosting it and possibly turning it into a servicing mission of some sort. And um, I, I guess it was might be the perfect thing for the Polaris mission, or at least that's what, what SpaceX kind of thinks is. Polaris is this program that Isaacsman has started um, through SpaceX. And um, mind you, he is also shelling out money to, to do these flights. Um, I'm, I, I was somewhat dubious when the announcement was made. I, I, I will be, I'll be honest with you. This to me sounded like a, um, it, it sounded like a, a mission that was looking for a purpose rather than, than, than the other way around the way it was being 
being uh, uh, sort of hyped by by Polaris and by Isaacsman in general. And I was just, I'm, I'm still somewhat dubious of it. The other reason why I'm somewhat dubious of it too is what condition would Hubble actually be in? Um, don't get me wrong. I'm a big Hubble fan. I mean, it's, but it's been up there since about 1990. It, it, it has, it has had its problems. Um, it has been visited several times by the, uh, by the space shuttle program. Uh, the final mission, which was STS-125, put it in a pretty good position uh, to get a lot more bang for our buck out of it. And um, But we, we do have the James Webb Space Telescope now. We will have the Nancy Roman Space Telescope going up in the not-too-distant future. Um, I'm, and they will be much, they are much more modern in, instruments, and, and I'm wondering is 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 throwing the money at at trying to do another Hubble servicing mission um the right answer and i think maybe that's what the study is is going to be all about to just try to find out if this is the right thing to do um you know isaacman saying that oh well our visit will go ahead and assure hubble another 20 years i'm like really um there's enough junk up there i don't know what condition the uh, solar panels are in. I don't know the condition of, of the instrument itself, because I know there's a lot of micrometeorites that, that hit these things. Um, so I'm kind of wondering um, what Hubble will look like in 2030. <laughs> um, but I'm also wondering too, is this just Isaacsman kind of saying, hey, we're here because NASA, this is not a study that NASA really asked for. They, they, they did not put out a, you know, an RFP saying, hey, we want to do a Hubble one final Hubble servicing mission. This was SpaceX approaching NASA with the idea. Um, and I, I'm, again, it, it kind of reminds me of the guy that, uh, has, is doing a roofing job, you know, next, in, a couple of houses away, knocking on your door, asking, hey, you know, I noticed that you've got the same roof as this guy had that I was doing a job on. Um, do you mind if we go ahead and give you an estimate on putting on a roof when you might not need a roof? And this might not be in, in NASA's game plan to go ahead and, and you know, get Hubble, uh, Con to continue using Hubble, especially since now you're going to be um, operating, you know, two new telescopes: the Nancy Roman Telescope and the uh, and and JWST, plus a few others that are out up there. So I don't know. I mean, I'm I would like to see the instrument used, but you know, I'm I'm on the fence on this one. I I still think that this is. This is Polaris looking for something to do rather than um, uh, really, really trying to help. That's that's my opinion. Um, I'm, I'm going to throw it out to the to the field and, and let you guys commiserate. But that, that's what I think this is. This is kind of a kind of Polaris looking for something to do rather than than, you know, really trying to help. I mean, my thought process on the whole thing is, is that, I mean, boosting it is great for its orbit. But as you mentioned, the question is the hardware. This was 
last updated in 2009, so 13 years ago. We're talking since STS-125 here. Um, hopefully everything is okay with the with Hubble for longer, but with the size of Crew Dragon and how much can be stored in its trunk, pressurized or unpressurized, I don't see there being enough room to bring up any of the parts that would be needed to very much service or repair uh, Hubble. I know there's discussion then of what about with Starship? That would probably have the capacity to bring up supplies to keep it going, or for that matter, you could probably find a way to fit it inside and bring it back to the Smithsonian at that rate. But I don't know if that's something that you would do on a Polaris mission. And the big thing to me is that NASA never really outright said, oh, we are excited about doing this. We're going to do it. It was, we are agreeing to do a study about whether it's possible or not. I mean, Hubble is ready for a commercial servicing mission, if so approved by NASA. The last mission, I know this was something I asked Eugene about, is that it does have the capability, it does have international adapters on it that a commercial spacecraft could use to dock to it, add to it, and then boost it and re-release it. Yeah, I mean, the the crew of STS-125 left behind an adapter on the back of the spacecraft uh, to in essence to to auger the thing in if you know and do it in a in a uh, uh expedient manner and a in a safe manner uh so then this way you know you don't have this you know this a la skylab or um you know a la a chinese booster uh landing on some you know some area that you don't want it landing in that's basically why that that was there. Now, if you're going to boost it, you know, using that, yeah, you can use it. But to boost it, I don't think you need a piloted ship to do it. If you really wanted to, I mean, you could you could attach a Cygnus, or you can attach a you know something else possibly to to go ahead or to do a reboost. You don't necessarily need a Crew Dragon to go ahead and and do a do a do a reboost, I mean, it, unless you're going to do a servicing mission too, and uh, I think that's what uh, what Isaacsman is, is itching to do. But the other thing too, and this is something that that isn't mentioned here, is the liability. Um, you have a non NASA crew touching a NASA instrument. Who, if if something goes wrong, and and you have left the the telescope in a non in an unusable state, who's responsible? Is it NASA or is it SpaceX or is it, you know, Polaris? You know, that that's another thing that needs to be worked out, I think. I think at that point, if they do go ahead with it, NASA would make a stipulation that we need to have one of our astronauts on board that can, you know, represent NASA in the Hubble service. Yeah, I'm sure, and, I'm sure and, that they would be OK with doing that on a Polaris mission. Yeah. And the the but. Again, Sawyer, I'm I'm somewhat dubious about this mission actually taking place. I mean, you and I, you know, offline talked a little bit about that before we started, and um, I, I think again, this was something that that NASA was approached by, and it just you know was like, well, all right, fine, no harm in doing the study. We might learn something, and uh, you know, t- took that attitude with it. I I don't really think that this mission is going to fly. That's that's my opinion. 
it would be nice, but again, I'm unfortunately on the same page as you. I am a very happy Hubble hugger. I love that. I mean, if there's a way oh, to yeah. bring it back down, it would be insane. But I don't know if there's any sense, like you mentioned, in doing a crewed mission currently to go boost it. But I hope they prove me wrong. SpaceX has done that many times before, and I'm very happy when they do. Yeah, we'll see. We'll we'll just assume the wait and see position and, and see what, what develops with this. We do have another big uh, mission as well, though, that we need to talk about that not only is happening, but did happen. And that was a sort of uh, asteroid redirection mission, better known as DART, finally making its big impact on science and an asteroid. Gene? Yeah, this this was big. Um, I was unfortunately supposed to be there um, in Maryland for this. And uh, due, to, due to an illness, I, I had to stay home. But um, the DART mission, which is really the first mission for NASA's uh, Planetary Protection uh, Division, uh, impacted the small asteroid Dynamo. I'm sorry, impacted the small small asteroid Diamorphos, um, which is in orbit around a, another another satellite, um, another satellite asteroid satellite uh, called Dynamos. Um, this thing was just. Uh, the, the the object of of the mission was to go ahead and try to see if they could sort of affect the orbit of this this small moonlit asteroid uh, by impacting the vehicle right into it, and uh, uh, the uh, the this was again a, a first of its kind kind of mission, and this was really really the first time humanity really really tried to go ahead and take its own fate into its hands, if you will. Uh, we have these low-flying rocks that are coming by Earth all the time. Um, we've never really known if we could deflect an asteroid before, and we really don't know whether whether or not it's even possible. Well, that's what the, that's what the point of DART was to go ahead and make sure to see if this, you know, this kind of deflection method would actually work. And at about uh, uh, seven fourteen on um, back on uh, September twenty sixth, we found out we had some very very dramatic images from the spacecraft as it was approaching the uh, the small moonlet Diamorphos, and uh, uh, Sawyer again th those images. First off, we had never seen any any of these objects except through ground based telescopes. This was the first real good look. We had on both of these objects, both uh, um, Diamorphos and Dynamos, and uh, just the the run up to the to the impact was was exciting enough. Um, it did eject a uh, cube, CubeSat called uh, Leech Cube that which is designed by uh, by our friends in Italy to try to see if, what they could do to to catch some of the images and uh, from from the impact to see what it might have done to the system post-impact. And those images were, were released. And Sawyer, again, the the tail that was created by the impact was what, about uh, uh, about a thousand miles long? From what I've seen of the latest numbers, it was roughly a thousand miles behind the asteroid, which is insane. And the fact that we had images of this 
projecta from uh, Hubble. Apparently, James Webb was turned towards it. There was a bunch of ground-based telescopes that caught it as well. And of course, the CubeSat that you mentioned. And my favorite, though, was the fact that we had live imagery all the way up until and partly including impact as it kept getting closer and closer. And the fact that there was an object the size of an American football field that essentially hit smack dab in midfield. And I, I love the last image where you can only see a quarter of it and the rest is red. And that's because it was mid-transmitting as it basically destroyed itself trying to move an asteroid. Yeah. Um, but again, this this is... I'll, I'll stress the T the in DART is test. This was a test mission to see if we could actually deflect an asteroid. Um, there is going to be a press conference later this week. We'll probably do a follow-up after that to see what uh, what the announcement uh, has said and uh, and to see if, if the orbit has indeed changed as a result of this. I know ESA is sending a follow-up mission out there called HERA. Uh, HERA will go ahead and inspect this, this dual asteroid system to see what... Uh, what was done uh, post uh, impact to the system? Um, I do, you know, it, it's still amazing um, the fact that that we humans can can finally say, hey, we can take our fate into our into our own hands. I mean, I know there was a lot of uh, a lot of Twitter posts out there saying, you know, hey, dinosaurs, this one's for you. Um, so uh, uh, again, this is the first time. Uh, the planetary defense division has really, really demonstrated what they could do. And, uh, th this was a, this was a huge, huge, huge success for them so far. Um, I would really love to hear though, how, if, and how much the, uh, the orbit of this, uh, of this smaller, uh, moonlet, if you will, um, was impacted by this spacecraft. So, uh, it, I'm, I'm really eager to find that out. We'll find out more about that on a press conference this coming week. And, uh, uh, but again, this, this basically says, Hey, humanity, you've got the ability to take, uh, your fate into your hands. Um, so this, this was, this was a huge, huge day, not only for, uh, for NASA and for, uh, the, uh, applied physics lab, um, over in, uh, Laurel, Maryland. Um, but this was also a huge step for humanity. And uh, it, it just demonstrates, too, you don't need Bruce Willis to go ahead and deflect an asteroid because there were some jokes running around, too, about that. And uh, uh, and we've said this several times. There are other ways you can you can try to deflect an asteroid. You don't necessarily need humans in the loop to do it. Um, so a lot, even a lot of these uh, these movies are just, you know, movies and uh but this is really really this is the real stuff this is this is how hopefully we'll go ahead and and be able to 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 deal with uh an incoming asteroid uh eventually i mean there are other there are other methods we can use if this does not work but uh so far um it looks like something was 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 done to this asteroid we'll just find out more about what occurred uh, later this week. So I'm looking forward to, uh, to hearing about that. 
Absolutely. And it's not just revenge for the dinosaurs, as you mentioned. It's protecting our planet in the future. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's still uh, some threats out there. Um, I know um, we're still I know the Planetary Protection Division is charged with flying, finding all of the low flying rocks, if you will, that might have a, a, uh, an effect on on Earth at some point. And uh, they are slowly getting that done. Um, by law, they've been given uh, a, uh, a decade to, to try to catalog everything. But, uh, you know, that also means money and time. And I'm, I'm, I don't know whether, whether or not they're, they're really getting what they need at this point. So I got a question, uh, you know, with hearing about DART and how it was planned and, you know, the actual execution of it. I got to ask, is there anything that applies to what we would say is a test other than Artemis? I mean, so much goes into the planning and execution of these things. Artemis? Yeah, not so sure. I'm not sure. Hmm. That's a really <laughs> interesting question, yeah. actually. Um, yeah, I'm not, um, I'm not I'm sure how to answer that. I'm I'm throwing darts at Artemis because uh, it seems so fraught with failure, and I know we're going to talk about that shortly. But uh, you know, so many of these programs uh, go so incredibly well. Look at look at what's happened on Mars in the last decade plus. Look at what happens with you know these other robotic explorers that we send out to. Jupiter and Saturn and outside the solar system. You know, where does test start and end? And when do we just say, yeah, we're going to go do this? I think it's a test if it's considered the first time. I mean, with anything, you could plan for a million hours. You could, you know, spend hundreds of hours looking online to buy a car, but you're still going to want to do a test drive, which would be your first time driving the car to make sure it's exactly what you want. I feel like it's the same kind of thing. I mean, once the helicopter on Mars ingenuity started flying <laughs> around, it's like, okay, it'll do a couple flights for a couple seconds. Now it's flying dozens of times. We're talking almost two, three minutes at a time here now. So yeah, it starts off as a test, but I think then progresses onward. In this case, I think DART was a very successful test and Artemis is a, we'll see, test. Okay, I'll, I'll let you go with that. I mean, if anyone Artemis, else out there has other opinions, I definitely want to hear it. Yeah, me too. Um, I'm. I mean, I, I will say to the defense of the folks working at Artemis, um, this is a huge undertaking. Yeah, you want to make sure that the first one is is goes real well. And again, this is an all-up test flight. It's a test flight of of the launch vehicle itself. Um, yes, it does have shuttle heritage, but it's taking a different approach. Um, yes, it um, has tech on board Orion that we've used for a while, but this is it, we're using it in a different way. Um, so even Orion, too, is being pushed to the limit. I believe its uh, staying power with crew is supposed to be... Um, I believe its lifetime is about 20 days. Um, 
you know, fully piloted, if that's the case. Um, so they're going to be pushing it well past that 20 day shelf life. The minimum I think is, uh, the minimal flight I believe is 28 days. So they're going to be pushing that thing, um, a lot harder, um, than it would normally do it. I mean, no, I know the large, the, the, the long duration mission could go for something like 42 days. So, um, yeah, I mean this. This, I, I, it all really. Def- it depends on how you define define the word. If this is a test to see if we can we can deflect an asteroid, Artemis is a test to see if this machine actually works. It's an engineering test as opposed to a, um, you know, a, a science and engineering problem. I think that's actually a perfect good explanation of it, and I think transitions well. As we continue to look at the Artemis mission, which is our next topic here, and that is where in the world is Artemis San Diego? Oh, no, wait, is when are we looking at a possible launch here for Artemis? As we know, we've had two previous launch attempts, uh, August 29th and September 3rd, both of which were scrubbed due to leaks of hydrogen on board the Artemis rocket, the SLS. Uh, They then did another test to see uh, what the leak was or if it had been fixed out at the launch pad. Uh, and it turns out after doing that test, no, it was not totally fixed as there were other leaks that popped up in the same exact location during said test. They believe they know what the cause was and that they would have been able to fix it in time for a launch attempt uh, before the end of the window in October. However, or uh, in September, excuse me. However, uh, there was a little thing called Hurricane Ian that came through. And this was a very interesting down-to-the-wire decision of whether to roll SLS back into the VAB or not uh, based off of the ever-changing hurricane path. Thankfully, NASA decided about a day and a half to two days before Ian was expected to impact that portion of the state to roll it back inside High Bay 3 of the Vehicle Assembly Building, which is where it currently sits as they work on preparing it for another launch attempt possibly in November. Now, there are some questions out there, of which I have as well, of uh, what other work is being done inside there. For example, the the flight termination system on board has batteries that need to be inspected after 25 days. At one point, they had an extension almost out to 40 or 50 days. So I wonder if they'll be doing that, uh, if there's any work that will be done to address leaks that came up. There's a lot of questions on it, but... As of now, it is still in High Bay 3 with a targeted launch window in November. To answer one of your questions, Sawyer, yes, they are swapping out the batteries. Um, I believe that was said during um, the uh, rollback press conference uh, that they decided to give out. They are going to go ahead and replace those batteries. They are also going to go ahead and attempt to service some of the CubeSats that are sitting there. The science that a few of them are delivering is considered to be paramount, and they are going to go ahead and charge up what they can um, from that. Um, There's a few of those little CubeSats that operate on solar batteries and solar power, and uh, they're just going to take a little longer to go ahead and get their their batteries charged and, and, uh, uh, you know, to, to, so they can, they can go ahead and continue doing science, but they are not going to be threatened. Um, the ones that, uh, that they can get to, to do the batteries, they will. 
Uh, they'll probably go ahead and check to make sure you know the leak problem is solved. I think that is a piece of, and Sawyer, you can correct me on this. I believe it's a piece of ground support equipment that we're we're talking about. It's almost in the same family as the uh, ground umbilical connector plate, if you will, uh, from the old shuttle days. Um, so it's they are similar, but a little bit different. It's not exactly the GUCP, the ground umbilical carrier plate, but it's still part of the portion that provides uh, the cryogenic fuels, including the liquid hydrogen into the core stage of SLS from the ground support equipment side. Yeah, and so, but again, I, I, I want to stress that it, it is a piece of ground ground support equipment and not the vehicle itself that's that's leaking. Um, so I'm sure they're going to go ahead and do work with reference to that to make sure that that problem is not going to go ahead and plague them again. Um, or at least if there is a leak that it's still within acceptable limits, I'll remind people that this isn't the first time that, uh, uh, we've had, you know, hydrogen leaks in, 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 in a, in a space program. And there's a, there's a piece, um, talking about the summer of hydrogen, uh, that harkens back to when, when shuttle was having these problems. Um, so they're, they're, they're trying to get, get some history from that and learn a few things from that. Uh, but again, I, I, I think too, we're, we're probably, and Sawyer, you and I were, we're talking about this offline. Um, I know for a fact that they would prefer to launch during the day. I mean, they're, they're kind of ambivalent that if I recall, um, uh, some of the, the discussions that were going on with, with some of the, uh, the Artemis, um, uh, management team, uh, they were, were saying, well, we, we would, we would, uh, launch at any time, but we probably would prefer a daylight if we could, if we could do it. Um, so you and I, Sawyer, were kind of theorizing on possible launch dates, and I think we've come up with with, with a handful here. Um, this is based on a chart that uh, uh, Space Policy Online's Marsha Smith went ahead and got, and she published this on her timeline. Um, and she got this directly. She got this directly from NASA. Okay, so um, Sawyer, you and I were were kind of talking offline before we started recording because of what was being said with preferences again they they i'm i'm going to say they'll, they'll launch it launch this thing at any time but i know if i had had the uh if if it were up to me i'd probably want to launch during the day so i can watch this thing climb and and compare the the visual uh information i'm getting with the ground data that i'm getting so you know we're probably looking at a daytime launch uh, there was a chart that uh, uh, that uh, uh, was given um, to uh, uh, Marsha Smith over at Space Policy Online. Uh, this was directly from NASA, and they kind of outlined some of the November um, possible November launch dates. And uh, Sawyer, we're thinking we might be looking at a Thanksgiving launch for SLS, are we? That's what I'm thinking is likely the 23rd, 4th, or 5th. Because just so you're aware, the window of this launch campaign goes from November 12th through November 27th with blackout dates on the 13th, 20th, 
21st, and 26th. So starting on the 12th, it begins at 11.55 p.m. with only a 24-minute window and then continues up until the 19th where it is 1.45 a.m. and that is a two-hour launch window. Then as mentioned, the 20th and 21st are out. And now starting the 22nd, that's when we get into daylight with T0 on that date would be 7.06 a.m., a two-hour launch window, which is the maximum that they have. So the 22nd, 23rd, and 24th are both morning and both two hours long. So I would say those are the most likely, especially for the chance to see the vehicle in daylight and how well it performs versus relying more so on data and occasional infrared cameras. Right. And I'm just going to throw that out, this out there too, because of uh, certain limitations that gives them a short mission duration. So we're looking at a mission duration of about 26 to to 28 days. So they're going to have to kind of get all of what they want to accomplish during that time period. Um, and Chipotle, I, that's, that's short in relation to other options for this mission. Most missions anyway, lunar in the future, won't be a month long. But the longer right. alternatives were upwards of 40 days, just for reference. Right. In fact, the the... The 27th opportunity uh, that you had mentioned, Sawyer, for uh, for uh, November 27th, and that is a 12:34 uh, p.m. Eastern Eastern Standard Time launch, would give them a long mission of about uh, anywhere between 38 to 42 days. However, the launch window for that date is only 24 minutes. Exactly. I, I could see it as a last minute option. But one thing I am going to say just from an opinion point of view here is that everything we've seen with Artemis is there's always something that pops up in the count. Even the first attempt before we had this hydro, you know, the main thing that scrubbed at the main leaks, you still had a seal that wouldn't quite go into place. They turned it off and on again, essentially, and it worked. I think you're going to get a lot of those, especially as we get into parts of the countdown that we've never been into, in particular, the terminal count. We haven't been there yet in any of the um, the wet dress rehearsals that they've gone through so far. So if I had to bet when it does launch, it is not going to launch at the beginning of any of its windows. It may, you know, get behind in the schedule because of, oh, a leak popped up that we can fix a number came up that we're not sure if it's legitimate we have to determine if it's a bad sensor like on the first attempt by the engines that's more of what i see happening so these two hour launch windows i think are definitely going to be preferred because i'm sure i'm not the only one that believes they're going to need some of those full windows if they're going to get off on those days yeah, I'm I'm forced to agree with you, but but again, this is why we're 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 kind of in unfamiliar territory, as you said, Sawyer. Um, it's this is a brand new vehicle. Um, they're going to be really really careful with it because of the fact that it's a brand new vehicle. Um, there, I will say that they're okay with reference to, um, I guess. Uh, uh, you know, expendables, basically stuff that you have to replace before you launch. They're in a good, good posture with that still currently. Um, it, it's just, I, I think again, this to, to, to go back to what Mark was talking about, this is a test flight and things are 
you know, stuff's going to happen, especially if, if as you get closer and closer to an area in the, in the count that you've never been before. That also includes, like, as you said, the terminal count. We haven't been to that, you know, terminal count yet. Um, so it's, it's going to get it's this is going to be interesting to watch from a from a technical standpoint. But again, I'm going to caution everybody and say, look, you know, we're going to be doing stuff that we never really done before. And, uh, uh, you know, to, to make the comparison, well, you did it with shuttle. Well, this is a different beast. So, and as this is a brand new beast and we still are, are learning more and more about this vehicle every time that we go through the, these exercises, things are going to happen. And, uh, um, you know, especially with something that's going to be, entrusted with with carrying people up there so you want to really really be careful i mean after this flight we're not going to have another artemis sls flight until at least 2024 but that flight will have people so that's why this one is so important and why i'm okay with it delaying if it means getting everything right and testing the vehicle and working out all these kinks now so that when it comes time for our first crew with crew two in 24 likely if i had to guess based on these delays probably early 25 that we have most of this worked out know what the issues were can adjust the upcoming vehicles and say okay we feel very comfortable putting our astronauts on board this and sending them out to the moon and also importantly bringing them back safely on such a wild trajectory that the heat shield will endure yeah and that that's one of the tests that that's one of the objectives. You 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 nailed one of the objectives there is to test the heat shield coming back um, from a, a lunar voyage. And that's why it is absolutely critical that they want to get this this vehicle back to study it and 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 make sure because yeah, they're gonna be getting all sorts of telemetry coming down, but it's there's all there's just so much bandwidth you're gonna be able to go ahead and take. Um, this is probably one of the most wired vehicles that NASA has ever put together, and it is going to be co- recording all sorts of telemetry. So we really want to get this thing back. We are certainly going to be keeping an eye on Artemis 1 and following the mission. Uh, while we were there for the first attempt, I was able to grab some fantastic interviews uh, with some great folks, including some astronauts, uh, as well as people that have worked on the uh European second stage, the boosters, the rocket itself, the core. We've got so much great stuff from that that we will bring to you as Artemis goes for its next launch campaign. So definitely stay tuned for those. You're going to want to hear them. And I know you've probably heard a lot of hype about Artemis 1 only now for the disappointment of all these delays and scrubs and rollback after rollback. Yeah. Welcome to spaceflight, folks. This stuff happens. <laughs> exactly. But we're going to hold on to those as we get closer to liftoff. And I think you're going to like hearing them. So it'll be worth the wait, just like the Artemis launch itself. Oh, yeah. And and I've, I'm going to cheat and say I've heard them. And yeah, you folks are definitely going to want to hear them. <laughs> you folks are them. definitely going to want to hear them. I've heard them, too. Oh, wait, I interviewed them. That's why. But <laughs> Yes, we will have that coming for you soon. In the meantime, one of the many voices that we've heard throughout the Artemis program, and in fact, most of the programs that we talked about today, was Dr. Thomas Zerbukin with the uh, Science Mission Directorate. And uh, 
Fortunately, it's a name that we're not going to be saying too much more, at least associated with NASA itself, as he prepares to step down. Yeah, he announced, uh, I believe it was this this month, that he is stepping down after six years. He has shepherded the uh, science mission directorate for that period of time. He has taken it through so many changes and so many challenges and he has done it with uh, with quite uh, quite uh, grace and and much aplomb, and um, I'm I'm wishing him all the best. I mean, he's he's taken he has taken a lot of programs, including the the beleaguered um, James Webb Space Telescope, and has literally turned it you know into the winner that that is delivering. Uh, on on its promise and on the scientific promise, um, he uh, said uh, over the uh, the uh, the past week, um, he gave his last town hall to the um, folks over at NASA and basically said it's really really about the team, um, and really kind of deflected it, you know, the successes from from himself, but uh, um, the team gets its. Uh, marching orders from on high and, and, and the management kind of really, really sets the tone and, and really, really sets, uh, you know, sets the, uh, the direction and the rest of the team just kind of, you know, follows along and, and, and really, really gets their cue from management and, and what, you know, if management believes in the program and what they're doing, then it's just going to make the team work harder. And, and this gentleman sure as heck, really really delivered that kind of leadership it's going to be uh it's it this is this is one of those bucket of water situations where you know you put your hand in the bucket of water and you pull it out and the hole you leave in the bucket of water is is the uh um is the hole you leave in the organization for most of us this is a gentleman that will definitely leave a hole and uh um the the uh there is a search going on for his replacement. He is encouraging people to apply right and left. If I understand exactly, he's encouraged a few people that were on that call to uh, on that town hall uh, call to uh, to go ahead and apply. Um, and uh, you know, he, he still is is going to be a force in science, no doubt. I just wondering what chapter two is is going to hold for him. Um, whatever it is, it's going to be. Uh, um, it's going to be one heck of a ride and we're going to, we're going to sit and watch, but, uh, um, I, I wish, uh, uh, Dr. Z all the best in, in his next endeavors and, uh, uh, a, a huge thank you for all the work he did, uh, with the science mission directorate. Uh, we're, he's going to be missed. I'll, I'll say that much. <laughs> Absolutely. I remember we had a little press gathering with him after the Parker Solar Probe mission, and it was, you could just tell he was like a kid in a candy store after the launch. Oh, yeah. I mean, we were all excited. It was a fantastic mission, and it's a great episode if you go back from 2018 to listen to and just hear his excitement in it. His interview is in there, uh, I believe in part two of our three-parter, but it was... I don't, he just he was infectious. It was so much fun. And you could hear even in all these press conferences after, but especially in person, just seeing him 
so joyous and so happy. You could tell science is absolutely his passion. He's not doing this because it's a promotion. He's doing this because he wants to be involved in all these science missions and wants to see the amazing things that come out of them. And it really showed in all that he did and all that NASA did with him, you know, as their head there. So I, he's definitely going to be missed, but we wish him all the best of luck on his next endeavors. Indeed. I mean, he set the tone for the, for the team. And uh, again, he's going to be missed. Absolutely. So good luck, Dr. Z. And on that note, I think that brings this action-packed episode to its conclusion. I'd like to thank everyone here who joined us tonight. Thank you for joining us, Gene McCulka. It's always fun to to go ahead and talk space with you guys. And uh, Kat, if you're listening, and I hope you are, uh, we missed you on this one. And uh, we'll see you next time because I'm really looking forward to hearing about I- IAC. Absolutely. And thank you so much for joining us, Mark Ratterman. Thank you all for putting up with me. I've enjoyed it. We'll see you next time. Oh, Mark, we love you, man. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> glad you're here. And we're glad you're here for listening as well. So thank you for joining us. And as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be where you are.